You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. I'd like to introduce our guest speaker for today, Ryan Phelan. Ryan is a serial entrepreneur in the whole area of health, consumer health, and I would say also living things, looking at some of the other, the other ventures that Ryan has co-founded. She's here today as a co-founder of DNA Direct, but she started out with Plaintree back in 1978, and she's going to tell you a little bit about some of those ventures. You can see through her bio that there have been other interesting ventures along the way. One that I'd love to hear her talk a little bit about, and I'll ask a question about if we, if we don't cover it in the main presentation, is the All Species Foundation. So this idea of discovering all the species on the planet. Ryan, we're delighted that you're here with us today and can't wait to hear what you have to say. Let's welcome Ryan Phelan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Um, I did a little bit of homework before coming here. Um, I must say it was a bit stressful. I listened to a number of the podcasts of earlier speakers, and I thought, how could I possibly add to their articulate words of wisdom um, and their incredible experience? And I thought of one area. And that area is around really um, the, really the juxtaposition of nonprofits and for-profit businesses and the whole concept of running a business as a service and running services as business. And so what I'd like to do today is actually give you my personal story of serial entrepreneurship. I'm going to um, have you walk through 30 years of my career together. Um, it was also a challenge going back through my archives, finding things I actually kept and things I didn't keep, and finding out the number of things I could Google and the things that I can't Google because they were just too damn long ago. Um, so as I go through this um, presentation, I'd like you to think with me, what's changed over the 30 years in these industries that I'm going to reflect on, and what hasn't changed? And how would you do some of, the some of the businesses or services that I started, how would you do them today, or would you do them today at all? Um, and if you did, what tools, what resources would you bring to that task? I thought of one area also where I think I differ on, um, with some of your previous speakers, and that is that everything I've started um, has been done on a, probably on a real shoestring. Some were for-profit ventures that were started with, with angel investment money, but none of the businesses that I've started um, ever took in more than $5 million in total equity. Um, I'm hoping to change that with the current business, I should add, but, um, but currently that's, that's my number. And many of the nonprofits that I ran um, were really done on very small budgets and yet had, I think, tremendous um, impact in a number of areas. So um, let me start. Um, okay, we're going to start. I think this will work. Okay. Um, we're going to start with the, uh, the Whole Earth Catalog, which was 30 years ago. I was really probably your age. Um, I was 23 at the time. The Whole Earth Catalog um, was really sort of the Bible of my generation. It was the web before the web. It had incredible access to tools, and probably many of your parents grew up, and some of them were even influenced by it. And what, um, when I was in college, one of the things that, and I was at the University of Berkeley, one of the things that I realized was that there was this incredible surplus of, not a surplus, but an incredible number of nonprofit services for the community members and very little access to that. It was impossible for women uh, to get access to uh, daycare centers or social services like mental health care or Planned Parenthood. There was a lot of money going into these areas in the nonprofit and very little access. So one of the things that I wanted to do was to do my own book and I had just graduated and I thought how could I do that? Um, publishing was not like it is today and it was traditional print and you had to find a publisher and things like that. But I looked in the very back of the Whole Earth Catalog, and on the very last page of it was an article about how to do a Whole Earth Catalog. 
And what it really talked about was the innovative technology then, which was an IBM Selectric uh, typewriter. And the big deal on the right there were type font balls, which really allowed a user, and it was really a professional user, but a user to actually change the look and feel of a written page. Well, that was pretty fundamental. It's really how the Whole Earth Catalog was done. It was how it was done as a, um, a, a really a pioneering venture. And so I thought, well, I could translate that, and I thought I would create a book called Savvy. And I published that book um, in 1976, and it, it was originally funded by a grant from a private foundation. I had a lot of promises from the University of Berkeley and the city of Berkeley to actually help publish it. Actually, um, not publish it, but actually help distribute it. It was something that I wanted to give away to all residents of Berkeley, and it included everything from mental health care and physical health care and employment and job training. But at the end of the day, um, we actually had to turn it into a small business. My partner, Annie Phillips, and I actually, you know, big deal, watching that book go through a printing press, and I was amused at looking at these old photos of just how, how different that is today when I think of how anyone today would actually, actually put out a blog or put out a wiki or um, any number of ways of distributing that same information, how revolutionary that has been. Well, with that, um, after I did that, I realized I, I, I thought I wanted to be a publisher, and I thought, well, I was going to leverage this incredible business experience I had of grassroots and tools, and I wanted to go and become a publisher, and I asked people, well, how do you get started in this business? I want to do it all. I don't want to just go be a graphic designer or an editor. And they said, well, there's only probably one place in the whole barrier you could go work, and that would be like for Stuart Brand of the Whole Earth Catalog. I mean, they do it all. So I called Stuart Brand, and I ended up working at the Whole Earth Catalog for a year. I should add, because it might come up, I later married Stuart. Um, but uh, it was a good year there. I learned a hell of a lot. And um, I got a little bit interested in healthcare when I was there. The Whole Earth Catalog, again, pioneered in self-care. And um, it, it was really at the very forefront of helping people think about alternative medicine and different ways of, as that book title is, Take Care of Yourself. So with that, um, I met a woman here locally in San Francisco named Angie Tyriot, and she had a vision of trying to help change the healthcare system. Now, I was perfectly healthy, never had a medical problem, but I thought it was a big enough idea that it warranted my interest. And Angie's vision was actually to change the way hospitals are run. Um, she actually wanted to build her own hospital that would actually be a healing environment. It would be a place that if you were sick today or someone in your family, you'd want to go to. And the vision for it was, was grand. It, was, um, it would have complementary medicine. It would have its own kitchens uh, for patients and families to cook on the unit. Uh, it would have people wearing normal pajamas or, or instead of being disrobed the minute that they get into a hospital. It would have access to medical information at the bedside. And it would really create a parity between nurses and physicians and incorporate the family as part of, as we referred to it, as, as a, um, a team member of the healthcare process. Well, one of the things that I realized from my experience was that information was everything. That if you wanted to empower the patient, you had to start by not just changing their physical environment, but you had to start by giving them access to medical information. Because at the end of the day, if you really were going to be an active participant in your health care, it really started by understanding why you were in the hospital and what you were going to do when you actually went home. So the first part of Plaintree, and which, uh, which we started in 1978, was to create a medical library for consumers. And it was the very first medical library for consumers. It was located and still is on the corner of Sacramento and Webster uh, at California Pacific Medical Center. I raised the funds to actually renovate that ground floor and we turned it into, um, a, and we turned it into a model for other medical centers to look at. And we did a book called How to Start a People's Medical Library. And in that library were 
uh, hundreds of titles. We, we set it up in such a way that it was very user-friendly. So a woman who's coming in and learning about pregnancy was also looking at um, early childhood development. They were looking at prenatal care at all different levels. Um, likewise, people who were looking at information on cancer, especially really life-threatening cancer, they may have also had access to information on uh, hospice care. And this is the first time, I mean, hospice was something that patients didn't even know about at the time. Alternative birth centers, by the way, had not even been um, conceived <laughs> before. So um, this medical library taught me a lot because it was a physical way of seeing how people use medical information. And um, now that I've done a number of, of businesses that, that are all electronic, I can tell you how incredibly powerful it is to actually do things face-to-face -face with people and to see what works and what doesn't, um, and how important information is. So with this medical library, we had access um, to all kinds of services as well, and really tried to help people think through um, this aspect of their life. The model hospital project went on to create an inpatient 16-bed medical <coughs> surgical unit at California Pacific Medical Center. It really changed people's lives in the hospital. It was absolutely revolutionary. Um, by 1980, AIDS hit San Francisco. Many of our beds were taken up by AIDS patients that, um, that really had such a profound experience on that unit. I remember many of them who, many of them died there in those early days. And the family members could actually be part of that care. Um, that was, it, it had never happened before at that level. So, during that time that I was doing Plaintree, I was running as the executive director. It was about a 10-year span. We had a very active board of directors. We, we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the library, millions of dollars for these different projects, including grants to actually analyze the return on investment for the hospitals. Um, and we uh, ended up uh, opening other units, um, medical surgical units, as well as um, acute both acute and non-acute care settings. But one of the things I realized after 10 years of doing this nonprofit work, of real service work, I realized I wanted to understand how do you fund something? How do you make ideas and organizations last? How do you give them staying power so that we were not constantly on the dole trying to look for the next grant? And I thought, you know, I want to be a businesswoman. I want to make something pay for itself. So I took a sabbatical from the nonprofit sector and um, thought long and hard about it. And the things that were interesting me in the Times were, were um, I would say, innovators in very different fields. And one of them was Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia. And Patagonia's catalog uh, had just gotten off the ground, and he was changing the whole sporting industry. I mean, people were doing skiing in a very different way before Patagonia. They were, you know, he really gave people access to incredible tools and incredible um, new technologies for their sports. And Yvonne also has always been, I think, a real role model of how to do a business as a service with a significant amount of their, um, of their profits going to the nonprofit sector. Smith & Hawken was another catalog that had just started. Um, Paul Hawken was um, an early advisor also to my company and really a business mentor for me. Um, Smith & Hawken today is not anything close to what um, the original catalog was like. Paul sold it very early on. And uh, it really was innovating in the gardening field. I mean, it was really talking about bringing in quality tools. And, and he was really prescient in understanding that gardening was going to be a wave that ran across um, all uh, ages in our culture and all different income levels, and that it would be a very fundamental part of um, everyday life here in America. And he wrote a book called Growing a Business that had a profound impact on me. And many of these things that I've learned and thought about, about how do you again add value to your customer beyond the sales transaction? And not just the customer, how do you actually add value to that whole community of users? Um, this was pioneering work back in 1987. And Paul gave me some very good advice. Um, I, I had an idea that I went to him with and I said, you know, I want to do um, clothing and gear for the adventurous woman. I had just come back from Africa and I thought, you know, my God, you know, there's so much that women should be doing today and they don't because the whole sporting industry has been geared towards males. 
And Paul said, well, you know, Ryan, that's a really good idea, but why don't you just start instead of all sporting goods and all adventurous stuff for women, why don't you start with something that you are good at and that you alone are really passionate about? And so at the time, I had just taken up the equestrian uh, uh, sports. Um, it was a very staid field um, in, in those days. Basically, um, you know, people were very divided in different camps between Western writers and English writers and never the two should mix. Um, there were hunt seat riders and dressage riders. There were um, barrel racers and there were, you know, racehorse jockeys. And nobody, they, these were different leagues. They rode different types of horses, different breeds, and they lived in different stables and different universes. And I thought, okay, well, how am I going to innovate in this field and what can I really do? And I had visions of, oh my God, I'll travel all over the world and I'll find the cool things from Argentina and look at what the gauchos wear and I'll bring in import saddles from Argentina. And, and, um, and you know, my vision was much bigger than my abilities in those days. And Paul said, well, just do one thing well, just start with a brochure and see if you can actually resonate this idea with anybody. And I was living on the, west, uh, on the East Coast at that time. My husband was teaching at MIT at the Media Lab in those very early days. And, excuse me. And I started throwing this idea around people on the East Coast about wanting to innovate in the equestrian field. And I cannot tell you how many people said, basically, well, that's a really nice idea. Um, why would you do that? <laughs> or, you know, if, if that was, those were the good comments, the really hard comments were, why in the world would anyone want to do that? And I would come back to the West Coast and I would meet with people who would say, go for it. And I really realized there, there really is this divide and that you guys are growing up and living in an area right now which is so entrepreneurial and I'm sure that's changed somewhat. But I do think um, we have a real privilege here in, in, in encouraging entrepreneurship that is not seen certainly uh, um, across the nation equally. So with my experience on the East Coast, I, I did temper my enthusiasm and uh, I thought long and hard about taking in family and friends money and I ended up starting this company. I got early uh, feedback from consumers that um, yes, I might have been onto something with innovating or in a writing gene that uh, was totally designed for writing as opposed to a sport gene. and. In 1987, with uh, Angel Funding, I actually launched my first catalog. And it really was fun. Those were great years. It ran for five years. We did very innovative things. Um, I became a designer, a manufacturer. Um, I, I met great people in the field, names that you would know, Susie Tompkins, who started Esprit. Um, people here that were really local, that, that were just tremendous resources and advisors to me. And um, I did travel all over. We did fashion shoots with local writers, real writers. We crossed the, the chasm between different styles. And more importantly, I think what we, what we did as we grew the catalog was as we blended these different parts of the sport with a common passion around writing, we actually um, really did change in a lot of ways the way people uh, interacted in this field. But I crossed an interesting boundary, which is that I also went into fashion. And uh, when I sold the company for a song in 1992, one of the things that happened is when, before I sold it in 1992, when I went to raise capital for it, we were doing $3 million in sales. The company um, was just starting to reach profitability because it had scaled slowly and, and built up an incredible asset base of patents uh, of, um, and things like that with uh, our manufacturing. But we crossed into the fashion world. And when I went to raise capital, investors looked at it and said, well, you know, we don't do equestrian. We do fashion. And if they had, were doing anything in the fashion world, they said, well, we don't do sport. And because I was blending these worlds, uh, it became a complicated sale. Um, in 1992, the re re retail recession hit here. And we went from a vibrant, um, I, whatever it was, maybe a 5,000 square foot warehouse filled with assets um, and uh, inventory to closing it in 1993. And I share this with you because that's me there in the very back cleaning and brushing the floor. 
there was a lot of stuff that was very glamorous about starting a business, and there's stuff that's really brutal about cleaning up the pieces when they don't work. At the end of the day, your employees are gone, your investors um, have come and gone, and um, it's really you at the helm who's got to see it all the way through. But what I can say is that that was an incredibly learning experience for me. Um, I really learned how to see something through to make sure that the vendors that I worked with did really well, that the customers at the end of the day got what they needed, and, um, and I really stood, stood by and helped all of our employees as best I could uh, find gainful employment at a time when it wasn't so easy in 1992. And um, I think doing that right served me well. A number of people that invested in Feelin's Equestrian Catalog ended up coming forward in future ventures that I was involved in. And many of them said that the reason that they came forward was because of the experience that I went through and the way that I handled um, adversary. Ad adverse adversary. Um, so in 1993, I closed up shop, it was a tough time, and I thought, well, what will, I, will I ever find a way to start another business? And then I saw Mosaic, and I saw Netscape, and those were the first web browsers. And I thought when I saw them, oh my God, if I had just stayed in business one more year, I would have had a business on the web, and everything would have changed. And, um, and maybe in a good way, it, you know, maybe in, in the best possible way that transition was a good thing for me because the truth be told, I wasn't really passionate about that field of the, you know, other I loved horses. I didn't love being a catalog owner, operator, provider, all of that it started to become pretty routine. Um, but what I wanted to do was that experience of trying to find a way to make something profitable. And when I saw um, then my first web browser, I thought really not so much about what it was going to do to online catalog sales. What I really thought is how transformative it could be for healthcare. And by the way, through this whole time I, uh, while I was doing this catalog company, I had stayed on the Plaintree Board of Directors, uh, had often been chairman of the board, and really always kept my hands in the healthcare field. So I had a big vision. Then it was, and this is an old slide, it was to become a source for all health and medical information. And I looked at all and I thought, oh my God, I thought even then, you know, that that was possible. Um, we wanted to be an online source for every kind of resource around patient education um, and medical information. And there wasn't really a model for that on the web. I mean, you know, nobody knew how anybody was going to make money on the web in 1994, 1995. And what I thought was, if I could find a way to build this library, and if I did it in enough of a quality way, I would find a way to sell it into the healthcare system. So I created Direct Medical Knowledge, and it was the first online medical library. Um, it was, we sold, well, actually I should mention right now, it was a full medical reference library with, um, I secured, I think, something, uh, something close to 200 publishing contracts uh, with different medical and healthcare publishers. And by the way, this was the first time anyone had been licensing content to put up on the web. The idea was just, you know, so outside the scope of most, most, most publishers at that time. We licensed the World Book Medical Encyclopedia and drug information. And we really created, at the end of the day, our big value was to create a personalized report for people around different medical topics. We sold the service to managed care, under, managed care clients. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, and Humana were our number one clients. And that was our model. By uh, 1999, we were one of the, or actually probably 1997, we were one of the first companies, albeit small, but we actually had a functional business model. Managed care clients paid us an upfront setup fee of 250000 to actually build out that medical library. Their healthcare plan members had access to the site. Not a new idea today, mind you, but very revolutionary then. Um, and then we did a licensing agreement with them on a per-member, per-month basis to access this gated site. Um, but as things happen, in 1999, I got in the spotlight of WebMD. And they were just gearing up. They had just done a merger with Healthion. Their combined companies in 1999 were valued at $5.5 billion. And at that point, 
at that merger. We were acquired. We were their first medical <coughs> library acquisition, and we got bundled into that roll-up. Our less than $5 million in equity that had come into the company returned $65 million to those investors. That was the great news. The bad news was I loved what I was doing. I had done it because I was really passionate about this field, and I wanted to innovate. And I was just beginning to work with my software team of engineers. And that was, that was just a really cool time to be in business and growing a, growing a company. But WebMD came along, and it was a, an offer that we couldn't review, refuse. Um, they acquired the company. I went off again and went on sabbatical. And during that time, thought long and hard about what my uh, next enterprise should be. And at that time, if you look back at, in the year of 2000, at the height of the dot-com period, or then starting to be the crash, there were a lot of new millionaires involved. And not yet a lot of philanthropy happening. But myself and a number of, of different people that I know well um, decided, you know, around a dinner table, what would be one of the big ideas that if there was a new level of philanthropy could actually change the world? And we had all different kinds of ideas, but Kevin Kelly at the time said, well, you know, wouldn't it be radical if we actually knew all life on Earth? I mean, if we actually understood more than a fraction of the species that were here, wouldn't it help us take better care of the planet? Wouldn't it help us identify invasive species? Wouldn't it help us understand better therapeutic approaches that we can take towards different plants and botanicals? And the, the list goes on and on. And the more that we looked into it, we found out, well, according to different estimates, we know less than 5 10% of the total amount of life on Earth. We know such a fraction. We know 1 point now, 1.7 million species. Then it was 1.2 million. And taxonomy was being done in a very old-fashioned way. So we put out kind of a, a manifesto, a call to inventory all life on Earth. Um, I sponsored uh, the first conference. Um, before we even had an organization, we've, um, I funded it at the California Academy of Science, and we, threw, we flew in from all over the world about 60 different scientists, all with different expertise. And we said, well, what would it take to actually you know, try to accelerate the discovery of life? And one thing led to another. We created, um, uh, we got a, a lot of people involved in this. This is a Wall Street Journal piece. It got a lot of interest from scientists as well as people in the uh, in the life sciences community, in the museum community that handle all of these specimens. And uh, with that, we raised a million dollars, and we were moving towards funding what we were trying to refer to then as the Encyclopedia of Life. Um, E.O. Wilson, um, many of you may know, is one of the most famous naturalists and scientists at Harvard, uh, really was a very active member, and he helped us think through what would an Encyclopedia of Life be like if you could actually go to the web and look up everything about a species. So with our um, group of software engineers, we created a search engine and we crawled um, many of these closed databases to see what we could come up with. And in 2002, we had, um, we were up to about 873,000 species that were pretty much kept behind firewalls of these gated uh, museums and collections under their databases. And we tried to envision what a search engine page would look like. And um, this was a mock-up. It never came to be. But the idea would be that you would actually type in a species name, and you would be able to find synonyms. You would be able to find general information. You could find images. You could do all, all these things. Unlike what a Google searches today, it would be much richer and much more in context. And you could find genetic information and everything else about that. Well. I'm glad to say that that was 2002, and I know firsthand that a number of search engine companies today are actually looking very much at exactly this kind of model of a very narrow vertical search. Um, but in 2002, a lot of people weren't paying attention to all species as a foundation. We didn't raise more than one million, and we really needed to raise a lot more. Um, but what I was seeing as I was at CEO of this nonprofit was the incredible impact that genetic information was going to have on species identification. And there was a movement afoot that was called the Barcode Initiative, which is now um, really taking off. And that is to actually take a very, um, very small part of the mitochondrial DNA at the species level and be able to use it almost as a barcode to identify species um, 
uh, out in the field. And um, I'm not going to go into much more detail about it, but as I was looking at the power of genetics, I realized that I was also learning more and more about how it was if genetics was affecting and would affect human health. And I thought, well, I wonder if now, in 2002, 2004, I guess I was up to, is it time to actually try to help the consumer learn more about their own genetic information? And at the time, you know, there, were, there was always something in the press coming forward, and we see it every day today, about know the future, of the future of genetics is here now, know your DNA, about diet and genes, about how genes influence uh, family history and family health. And I thought I would really take a look at where the growth in this whole field of molecular diagnostics was going. And um, in 2004, according to these statistics, um, it was, uh, molecular diagnostics was going to be a $6 billion interest industry, and it was forecasted to be a $32 billion industry in 2013. And in fact, this is exactly playing out. The biggest growth area for this is in uh, predictive testing for um, a, a predisposition towards a health uh, or family medical problem and into the area of what is referred to as pharmacogenetics around drug metabolism and genotyping. And I looked at what some of the bottlenecks were and why, why hasn't this technology, if there's so much interest in the media, why hasn't genetics been incorporated in, in your healthcare today on a daily basis? And here are some of the drivers that are moving this field. For every 300,000 patients today, there's only one medical geneticist in the country. Some states have a, a very little genetic expertise, and others, obviously, in, in uh, major metropolitan areas have more. But the same thing with genetic counselors, and genetic counselors are a form of professionals who actually help people think through the impact of their genetic information. Um, there's very limited access to these genetic experts, there's lots of labs that can actually do molecular diagnostics today. It's one of the fastest growing fields. Um, there's very little awareness in the medical community today around how health and, and genes combined and, and how people can incorporate testing information. And as w what I've learned more and more about healthcare, it's very slow to adopt new technology. There's also very limited insurance coverage for a lot of genetic testing and, of course, there's a fear of genetic discrimination. So I thought about these problems in the marketplace, and I thought about the promise of this technology. And I looked at, well, what happens when somebody gets a genetic test result? So this is actually an example here on the screen of what a patient would get if they took a test to find out if they had a predisposition to breast cancer. And it's very hard to read, not just because of my slide, but because it's it's very technical, and even healthcare professionals have a hard time interpreting it and really trying to make sense to the, for the patient. What does it mean um, if you're carrying this gene? What does it mean to your siblings? What is your risk of getting breast cancer? What is your risk of getting ovarian cancer? Um, and so I thought, well, is there a way to do a much better job providing this information? Could I parlay what I learned at direct medical knowledge in providing personalized reports in creating a medical library online? Could I use that kind of technology? Could I use that kind of thinking? Could I use all those years of watching patients actually walk into a medical library and try to make a difference? So with that, in 1994, I set out and raised money um, from some happy investors who were in my former uh, investment in direct medical knowledge, and I convinced them that a mission to help bring the power of personalized medicine to every patient and consumer and to healthcare providers could actually reduce health risk, it could help prevent disease, and in many cases it could actually better target a therapy uh, based on drug metabolism. So in 1990. Five, just last year, in January of last year, we launched this website. And um, at DNA Direct actually now offers genetic testing direct to the consumer. Um, we've had a year of uh, working directly um, with the public. We provide in-depth education on the site in our content library around inherited medical problems and conditions. We help facilitate the collection 
of um, DNA. We are not the lab. We don't do the lab. We test. We actually send out and contract with labs all over the country. Um, most people do DNA testing uh, through uh, our site by a buckle swab. It's just a, a cheek swab that somebody takes a little scraping of DNA from the inside of their cheek. Some of our tests are done with a blood specimen and we contract with LabCorp who actually facilitates all of our testing. And people can go to a, a lab draw site in any um, major city and, and uh, provide that specimen if they need. We provide these personalized reports online. and we've, So we've basically web-enabled genetic counseling. Because remember, when I showed you that picture of the bottleneck, there's a limited number of them. And that this is a way of giving people much greater access to genetic testing. So we do these reports. Um, if someone was to print out one of these reports online, it would probably be 30 to 50 pages. But of course, on the web, people browse and they look at what they want. The first day they come in when they get their test result, they're focused on chapter one, what your results mean. You know, a week later, they come back and they say, OK, well, what does this mean to my family members? Um, and you know, how do I share this with my family if I'm going to be at increased risk for this or that very serious medical problem? And how do I share this with physicians and the healthcare team? So um, we also provide information to their physicians and help them with it and provide uh, phone counseling as needed. Our current tests include everything from common forms of, thrombo of blood clotting disorder called thrombophilia to carrier testing for cystic fibrosis. We help people look at underlying causes of infertility based on a genetic um, factor. We look at um, genetic causes for recurrent pregnancy loss. All of these things are areas where genetic testing can actually help people change something that they're doing in their life, change a therapeutic, or make informed healthcare decisions. And as we go forward, we're really looking at this whole field of drug metabolism, and we'll be launching tests around areas like tamoxifen and very specific antidepressants and how they're linked to genotype. Um, I think our strategy to do this is to really basically to build a destination site for genetics and personalized medicine. And what we really want to do is distribute our services not only to consumers online, but also through healthcare providers, through labs, and uh, managed care organizations. And so as I look at this business and as I reflect on all this time, no no doubt there are lots of challenges in running a company like this. Not everyone wants to know about their genetics. I mean. For many of you here, it might be like, who cares? But um, if there was a very cheap and affordable test that really gave you your blueprint, your <coughs> DNA blueprint, that would be great. But it, we don't have it today. There's no $1,000 all-genome test. Um, and the truth is, genetic testing really needs to be interpreted. It's just not going to be a one-pager that you get printed out at home. It's got to be a lot more informative to make it really actionable. It's not inexpensive. Many of our tests run from anywhere from $300 to $3,000. And again, many people are only going to be comfortable ordering tests like this through their physician. So I see in an area like that a tremendous opportunity. Only a fraction of the population has ever utilized this kind of testing, less than 1%. There's an exponentially growing number of tests in the marketplace. Already there's some 1,200 <laughs> genetic tests that are available. And what I know is that in the near future, every one of you in this room, at some point in your life, are going to have a genetic test for one reason or another, or want one. And so what we're really trying to do is position our company in a way that we could be that provider online. So now I want to come full circle and say, that's where I am today. What did I learn, and what, what do I think about when I contrast these two industries between the publishing world that I've uh, been bearing relationship to and to healthcare? I look back at that old photo of us sitting around and looking at a printing press, and I think of the tools that you guys have at your hand today, from your ability to do podcasts, to do blogs, to do video, um, you know, all of this information, your ability to publish is so different, and that field has moved in such a radical way. And then I look, and I, um, and I think about healthcare, and, um, and I want to just comment on something that's just was a surprise to me and shouldn't have been. But just last month, on, on the, uh, one of the cover stories on strategy and business, um, a, a publication, um, I believe out of MIT, it was an article on five-star hospitals. And it featured Plaintree. 
and this was news. And I'm glad to see it in the news. My God, finally, you know, this is really, you know, this nonprofit that I started has really grown into something. There's something like 90 plain tree hospitals nationwide. They've got international uh, alliances with hospitals that are trying to think and um, think differently about taking care of patients. And as you see here, treating patients like customers not only good business, good medicine, it's good business. So we're back to this whole idea of business is service and service is business. Um, again, you know, what, what we're, they're commenting in the article is how radical it is for patients and families to be actually be able to cook in a hospital and to eat something other than institutional food. They're talking about the fact that patients could have access to medical records. And in fact, where they did a study, patients having access to their medical records actually lowered malpractice claims. Well, we made that case uh, in 1978 when we were talking to hospital administrators that why are patients litigious? Because they're kept in the dark and they're surprised. If they're part of the team, you know, something goes wrong. Well, you know, that was their choice. They were part of it. It's a very different relationship. Again, today in 2006, this is new. He was in the healthcare field. So I look at that field and I say, okay, healthcare, it's slow to adopt these technologies. There's still no common electronic medical record. Um, when we just had the devastating hurricanes um, and tsunamis, people's medical records were never in a place that they could go and pull that information from one city to the next, from one country to the next. It's not portable. There's very little interoperability of data. The patient does not come first in healthcare by and large. It's most technology, most services are geared around the efficiency of the medical staff and the medical administration. And the truth is many doctors are still very informed by, are, are so bothered by informed patients coming in with information they got off of WebMD. So I look at that and I say, my God, there's a tremendous opportunity here. Eight out of 10 web users use the web to seek out health information. Nine million users a day are searching for medical information. That's more than people see a doctor or go to a doctor on a daily basis. $40 billion is annually spent out of pocket for complementary medicine. And when I started again in this field, people were saying, well, who's gonna pay for complementary medicine? It's not gonna be paid for by insurance. Well, in fact, people pay out of pocket for that. Um, we've seen this whole uh, initiative around consumer-directed health care savings accounts. It's forecast to be a $100 billion industry in 2010. We know boomers like me are aging, and we're going to demand a different level of health care services and more personalized treatment and care. These are opportunities for you as you think about businesses you may want to go into. So I leave you really thinking about this theme, about how can you make a difference whether it's in the nonprofit world or the for-profit world, how can you think about the, the entrepreneurship that you um, may endeavor in terms of service? And um, I, I think really what I've laid out for you here today has really a, a, been a great gift to me. It's allowed me to actually think about my current business in light of all my other businesses and services. And that's a gift, so thank you. Go ahead. Um, so I'd like to ask you about this kind of phenomenon uh, on the web right now of bringing the power to the consumer, and in your case of bringing the information to the consumer. With the DNA testing, there's, um, like you mentioned, a lot of ethical issues around, for example, deciding whether or not to test for something um, because of whether what options there are to do once you find out whether or not you carry a gene, for example. Um, so what, um, I guess, mechanisms do you have in place for allowing the consumer to think through those issues before they decide whether or not to test for a specific... Sure. Um, let me reiterate your question. Um, I believe what you're really asking is, does a site like DNA Direct help people think through whether or not a test is going to be useful to them or, or really beneficial? And I think this is really the crux of what genetic counseling is. That's, that's what people do really on a one-on-one. -on -one. And we've really tried to replicate that, that whole experience for our users on the web. So it's very much around this whole idea of informed consent. Um, we try to help people think through, well, you know, people who are of Ashkenazi descent have a very um, 
a high likelihood of having a, a breast cancer mutation that would put them at high risk for breast cancer. Um, people of other ethnicities are in a very different level of risk factor for that. And we try to help people think through the pros and cons of testing. But you're absolutely right. The ethical issues involved in this are important. And I think that is really a very good use of the web. Um, I'm a strong believer that those kinds of thoughtful decisions are actually often made best in the privacy of your own home when you as an individual are just looking up and doing that research. You don't have the pressure of somebody talking at you or you know, you're looking at your watch wondering, you know, is your parking meter expiring? Um, it's a very different f experience and I think informed consent is very appropriate for a web. Yes? You've had this amazing, varied career in all these different fields and I was wondering what you wanted to be when you grew up. Um, what did I want to be when I grew up as a kid? Um, I think I didn't have a career path in mind. I wanted to make a difference. Um, I didn't want to just do a me too. And maybe it was because I was one of seven kids. I felt like at the end of, of that litter of kids that I really had to stand out one way or another. So that's what I've been after. Is um, And I think when I look at why did I start different things. I started it because I didn't see somebody else doing it. It wasn't that I thought I could do something faster, cheaper, better. It was because there was something that was fundamentally happening that wasn't happening in a way that I thought it could be done. And I thought I could, you know, edge it forward. Yes? Yeah, I'm not sure what the legal uh, situation is right now, but what do you think about the... Uh you know, the use of, or insurance companies, you know, maybe in the future re requiring people to undergo genetic testing and using that to, you know, charge the, whatever the premiums. Are. Sure. Um, the question around, you know, what's going to happen with insurance uh, around genetic information and how do I feel about insurance companies having access to that information and misusing it? I should say I'm a strong supporter of a Senate bill that, that passed unanimously last year um, for genetic, um, to, uh, to protect genetic discrimination both by employers and insurance companies. But the sad news is that that bill that passed unanimously has passed before in the Senate and has never been approved by the House. And it's languishing today. And it's languishing, I understand in part, because of uh, the Chamber of Commerce and pressure that they're getting from, uh, potentially from insurance regulators. I don't know that, but that is uh, the word that is out there. Um, I, I think insurance companies say they don't want to use this information and they don't want to misuse it. Um, but I think having some kind of uh, regulatory, you know, legal regulatory issues involved in this would be very helpful for consumers for protection. At DNA Direct, we allow people to test, well, I shouldn't say we allow them, all of our customers test at DNA Direct with anonymity. We allow them to add their own name onto the medical. Uh, to their uh, lab report at their choosing if they want it for to submit it for insurance purposes. Most of our customers appreciate that anonymity because they don't really know how this is going to play out and they want to ensure confidentiality around it. But um, I, I, you know, I've got to say it's not the number one reason. Um, a lot of people feel so strongly about getting the test and getting access to it. That's why they test with us. Yes. Yes. Well, that's correct. Um, HIPAA is, is about a lot of things, including the protection and confidentiality of your medical information by healthcare professionals. But yes, you do technically have access to your medical record, but try getting it. <laughs> I mean, it is not easy. And in fact, for many patients, when they go to request information from their physician, because they want to take their medical chart and share it with another physician for a second opinion, it really raises alarm with your primary doc. It's as if, it's as if you don't trust them. And I think what Plaintree was trying to do in those early days was to say, put the patient medical record right at the bedside. Let the patient look at every note and comment that's going on in the hospital so that they can actually go back to the doc and say, you know, I, it wasn't that that medication was making me anxious, it was making me sleepy. Let's correct that for the record you know, so that they could actually inform that medical record. That is not happening today.
got a long ways to go. Yes, in back? Yes. Right. Um, the question is, correct me if I'm, I'm not quite getting it, but the question is really around the fact that litigation drives a, a lot of what goes on around healthcare, and are there ways to actually leverage their interest in creating safeguards like open access to medical records to better serve the patient? Correct? And I, I think that um, it, what you've touched on here is a very interesting problem, and it's one that I see as one of the big bottlenecks in healthcare, is that because of the fear of litigation, a lot of things don't come to pass, and a lot of things that do come to pass only come to pass because, of, uh, because uh, it's going to be a way that anesthesiologists can actually reduce mortality at the bedside uh, in the ICU. Or, you know, I mean, it's, it's so... Uh, it's so much driven by this fear of malpractice that some things that are just going to be good practice, good care, that don't have that same kind of ROI, never advance in healthcare. And genetic testing, in some cases, is one of those. Um, yes, it's just going to inform the patient. It's going to inform a, a, you know, an 18-year-old woman who's on birth control pills who might be at high risk for blood clotting that birth control pills may not be a good choice. But you know what? Those, those things are not yet you know, big problems for the insurance industry around litigation, you know, and so it, it doesn't get integrated. Um, but I'm always thinking about how to use that uh, as, a, as a tool, and um, it's, a, it's a tricky one. It's a double-edged sword. Yes? Do you consider the things that you've done to be social entrepreneurship? Do you that term? What do you think of that? Um, I do. I mean, I think social entrepreneurship is very often... Um, refers to people who operate in the nonprofit world but really are entrepreneurs, meaning that it, they're looked at as businesses. They're just not looked at as, um, uh, you know, as traditional um, nonprofit membership clubs or things like that. They're really trying to figure out, is there a way that, you know, patients or, or um, I'm sorry, that users would, would pay for the service and see value in it. And so I, I think social entrepreneurship is a fine name for that. Yes. Uh, in terms of a potential gold mine for this technology, uh, have you been approached? Are you looking at groups, let's say the military, that might want to do screening on large numbers of enlistees for uh, professional sports or entertainment? Those types of areas where you know peak performance uh, is at a premium, and spending two or three or $300, 500 1000 is really like a drop in the bucket in terms of the results they get. Right. Um, you, the, the question is, are, are there large um, buyers of this service for athletes or other areas like the military that may want to utilize genetic testing services? And um, I haven't gone after those particular markets yet, um, but we are looking at aggregators for some of our genetic testing services. So. Um, you know, in, a, in addition to going to direct to consumers, so it's a good thought. Um, I'll take one more question because I'm sensitive to your timing, and then we can continue outside if any of you want to join me. Yes, in back. Um, the question about the Japanese market, we have not yet um, really gone international. We are starting to get requests internationally for genetic testing. Um, Every country has different policies around the shipment of DNA, around the whole field of genetics, who can interpret, who can order a test. And we've really spent a lot of time solving how we can do that through all the states. <laughs> because, of course, every state here in the US has different regulations regarding um, uh, providing medical services. So we've nailed those down, and, and we'll be starting probably next year on the international markets. So with that, um, I hope you guys can join me outside.